Some describe the Bible as a love story, with God as the main character who relentlessly pursues us with and from a perfect love. Throughout both the Old and the New Testaments, we read about this God of love who longs to be in relationship with us. In the New Testament, for example, in 1 John, it definitively teaches us that God is love. The Gospels, they reveal that God's love ultimately culminates in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die for us so that we can live with Him in eternity. Charles Swindoll says of this, Jesus' love was one massive crescendo that never diminished. He loves to the end. So is it any wonder that Christians, followers of Jesus, are called to a life that is unmistakably marked by love? In other words, the quality that distinctively sets apart Christians as followers of Jesus is not some pithy bumper sticker. It's not a cross hanging from a necklace or a tattoo of a dove or a fish. The true mark of Christian love, the true mark of Christianity is love. Arthur Pink in his commentary in the Gospel of John says it like this, love is the badge of Christian discipleship. It's not knowledge, nor orthodoxy, nor fleshly activities, but supremely love which identifies a follower of Jesus. As the disciples of the Pharisees, he says, were known for their morning prayers and keeping of the laws, as John's disciples were known for their baptism, as every other school of belief is known by its particular doctrine, so the mark of a true Christian is love, and that a genuine, active love, not only in words, but in deeds. Friends, the scripture makes it abundantly clear that love is at the core of who we are called to be as followers of Jesus Christ. Whether, as Jesus says in Matthew 22, that we're called to love God as the greatest commandment and to love our neighbors as ourselves as the second commandment, we're called to love. We're called to love all the way to the extreme, as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, to even love our enemies. This love that Jesus is calling us to is an unconditional love in its expression. It's intended to flow over the most impenetrable barriers, the darkest places, and into the most hardened of hearts. Why? John 3.16 For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. Love is at the core of who God calls us to be so that everyone might have eternal life with Him. And this is the radical dimension of love that Jesus brings so that others, so that everyone will be eternally changed. And in a compelling way, when we love like this, it shows the world that we belong to Him. As Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. But then, tucked away in the 14th chapter of the book of Luke, Jesus delivers a seemingly different and a rather hard saying when it comes to love. In the New International Version, Luke 14, 25 and 26 says this, 
Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even hates their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, as we've said in the introduction to this series on the hard sayings of Jesus, some of Jesus' sayings are hard due to our lack of understanding their historical or their cultural context. And some are hard due to the demands that they make on our lives today. Now, this saying in Luke 14, 26, while baffling on the surface, is actually in that latter category. The words of Jesus are hard because of what they demand of us. First, let's be clear. Jesus is not saying that we're to love everyone else, including our enemies, as he teaches elsewhere. We just heard that in Matthew 5. And then hate our parents, our spouses, our kids, or even ourselves. Jesus is not contradicting himself, nor is he adding some sort of superseding addendum to all his other teachings. So what is Jesus saying? As with any text in Scripture, basic rules of interpretation include consulting parallel texts, if we can do that, if there is one, and reading the broader context, zooming out to gain the whole picture. And in this case, we do have a parallel uh, passage written by Matthew in his book, in chapter 10, verses 30 to 7, 37 to 39, Matthew writes this, same context. If you love your father, Jesus is saying to the crowd, more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, then you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. Taking into account Matthew's version, some translations that come later, such as the New Living Translation that we use quite often here at Jericho Ridge, now include in Luke's account the words in comparison. So in the New Living Translation, this same account reads, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and he said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father, your mother, your wife, your children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. Now, it may be that Jesus first said the words that Luke originally recorded without that in comparison clause in there, and then expounded on that to the crowd at the time, and Matthew picked up those words that included some more clarification. Or it may be that the two disciples simply heard what Jesus was saying and wrote it down from a certain perspective. Think of the two sides of the same coin analogy. Each disciple wrote what Jesus said from a certain perspective. It's not a matter of right or wrong. Matthew understood that Jesus was talking about us loving more, while Luke takes the perspective of us loving less. Matthew's talking about the inadequacy of loving more. Loving others more so than Jesus simply won't do if you want to be in a relationship with God. Luke's talking about loving less when it comes to our family and other relationships in comparison to our love for Jesus. If you want to be in a relationship with God, we must love others less than we love Jesus. The two accounts, Matthew and Luke, are not contradicting each other, nor is Jesus contradicting himself. In both accounts, our love for Jesus is paramount. 
Now, if we broaden, if we step back and we look at the, the context and we include the rest of Jesus' teachings, and in fact, as we looked earlier in the introduction, the entirety of Scripture itself, it becomes clear that in Luke 14, Jesus is using hyperbole to get our attention. We already know from the broader uh, context of Scripture that love is at the core of who God is and he, who he calls us to be. And in this instance, Jesus is using a public speaking tool to gain our attention for a greater, deeper meaning. He wants us to catch what he's saying. He doesn't want us to miss it. Miss it. He's using the most uh, arresting and challenging language he can in order to call us to radical love. Our love for others flows from the core of Christ's sacrificial love for us. We're still called to love our neighbor, which by extension includes those closest to us, like our parents and our spouse and our children. However, Jesus is saying there's a greater agenda when it comes to our love. We're being called to an even greater, a more radical love toward Jesus. In other words, friends, the degree of loving Jesus is much greater than the degree of loving our parents or our spouse or our kids. And because the degree of that love is so great, the cost on everything else in my life is greatly affected. Fully giving my heart to Jesus requires a relinquishing of control in every area, in every relationship of my life, no matter the cost. Let's look again at Luke chapter 14 and let's keep reading beyond verse 26. Starting verse 25 again, large crowds following Jesus and Jesus turns to them and he says to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, your wife and children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise you can't be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. He goes on to say, but don't begin until you count the cost. Don't start this relationship, he's saying, with me until you count that cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone's going to laugh at you. They'd say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to, to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't do that, he'll send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you can't become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor over time, how do you make it salty again? Jesus is cautioning us. Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. In Luke 14, Jesus isn't advocating a lifestyle of hatred. He's actually simply yet profoundly teaching how I am to love and where my priorities must lie if I'm going to love and follow him. He's putting into perspective the life I'm called to live if I choose to follow him as a disciple. We're called to follow him in everything we do, with every word we speak, in every relationship we have. And he's saying, am I willing to surrender that degree of control to him, even to the point that it may cost me my life or my family? John Piper says, Christianity 
What Jesus demands from us is not most deeply and most fundamentally decisions of the will. He says that comes later. Deeply and most fundamentally, Christianity is a new birth, a deep, profound transformation of what we treasure, what we love. And if that deepest, fullest love isn't for Jesus, then we're not worthy of Jesus. He says when he, when Jesus is your supreme treasure, then you belong with him. In other words, as a forgiven, as a redeemed person, it's my radical, unconditional love for Jesus that allows me to be in his presence. Friends, Jesus is warning the cost of following him is extremely high, and he wants us to know that up front. Christianity is not some bait-and-switch scheme. Jesus grabs our attention with this hard saying, and he warns us not to start something that we're not prepared to finish. He's saying, don't fall in love with me if you aren't prepared to commit fully to this relationship. In fact, from Jesus' disciples onward, many followers of Christ have paid the cost of their relationship with Jesus by losing their lives. Now, for most of us, the cost of loving Jesus in the Western world may not involve sacrificing our lives, but it can still be painful when it includes the loss of relationships, for example, like being disowned by your family. Others may give up wealth and positions of power to love and follow Jesus, and some count their own health as secondary or they place themselves in uncomfortable, dangerous circumstances to live out their love for Jesus. Whatever particular path Jesus is calling you to, his teaching in Luke 14 is that entering the kingdom of God by loving him as Lord is paramount in comparison to any other endeavor we, we, we take on. No matter how noble that might be, no matter what we pursue, our love for Jesus has to be paramount. It's, and it's always a matter of unconditional love. No restrictions on our love for him. I've heard it said to me more than once, Hey, Wally, life is not about you when you follow Jesus. God's goal is not to ensure my comfort, my happiness, or, or my success, not even my trouble-free standard of living that I strive for. God's goal actually for me is to ensure the maturity of my love for Jesus. To love Jesus first and everything else second. That's the essence of what Jesus meant when he said to the crowds that were traveling with him, whoever does not hate, whoever does not hate mother, father, whatever else it is that you're pursuing in life. Jesus is saying it's a litmus test. Is Jesus first and foremost in your plans, your thoughts, your goals, whatever you're pursuing in life? Or are there areas you're striving control to control, areas that are, are reserved as off-limits, He's saying if you don't hate these areas in comparison, or stated as Matthew would write it, if you don't love Jesus more than these other areas, then you're not ready to be Jesus' disciple. And Jesus himself modeled this for us as he followed his Father all the way to death on the cross. An act of obedience? Absolutely. But ultimately, first and foremost, it was an act of love. And in Luke 14, he invites us up front to join him in this love, to join him in a pursuit of love that will be a much greater challenge than we expect it to be, to join him in a pursuit of love that's going to require a far greater sacrifice than we ever imagined it would. 
To agree to love God with all your heart and your mind and your soul is to commit to stay that course to the very finish. And the ultimate reward for Jesus when he did that, what he received for his pursuit of such committed love is to sit at the right hand of God the Father and the throne in heaven and to be given all authority in heaven and on earth. Our ultimate reward for pursuing such love to be in the presence of that Jesus for eternity. Friend, if this love, if this following of Jesus is something that you want to commit to, then I want to invite you to pray a simple prayer with me now. If you're watching Church Online, our live feed, you can click on that commitment button you see on your screen and you can pray right now with one of our pastoral staff. But let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we know that you are love. We know that you were sent to this earth to die for our sins because of God the Father's deep, deep love for us. And you went all the way to the cross because of your deep love for God the Father and for us. And now you invite us to follow you. You invite us to enter into a loving relationship with you. And we want to say yes. We say that we commit our lives to you. We commit to a loving relationship with you. Would you forgive us our sins? And would you replace that with your love living inside of us? And might others around us know that we're following you because of our love, our love for you and our love for them. Lord Jesus, we give our lives to you with thanks and praise. Amen. Friends, as we conclude our time together, I want to send you with this promise of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 29 to 30. Jesus replied, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the gospel will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, Jesus says, that person will have eternal life. If you have given your life to Jesus and you are following, committed to loving him, then that promise is for 